continue in chapter 12 of the book of 1 Corinthians. And over these last three plus weeks, we've looked at the topic of spiritual gifts. We continue that today, and we'll continue to look at this over the next several weeks. Initially, I wanted to try to get through the end of chapter 12, and it's just not reasonable to do that. You'll thank me for that later, because we would be here a really long time. Um, there's some things in our passage today that um, we'll develop a little bit le- a little bit better next time when we continue in this passage. Um, so we'll get to that when we get there. But we've looked at so far the principle of these spiritual gifts, and the overriding principle is simply that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord over the gifts. He is the Lord whom the gifts have come from. He is the Lord to whom these gifts are served under. So He is the Lord. We've also looked at the reality that there is to be unity in diversity. We'll continue to look at that in our passage today. But we know that there is a singular body of Christ. There is a singular church. And yet even in our small congregation, we are many. There are There is great diversity within this Small group of people, different backgrounds, different interests, different abilities, different um, educational, everything is different. And so we come together very, very different, and yet there is to be unity in face in the face of this great diversity that's here. So as Paul goes through this and teaches about the diversity of the gifts, he does so to counteract the problem that the Corinthians had and focusing most prominently on the gift of tongues and probably also to some degree the speaking gifts, which we'll review very, very briefly. But what Paul says is that there are a variety of gifts, but there's the same Spirit. There is a variety of ministries, but there is the same Lord. And that there are a variety of effects, but there is the same God. So regardless of how diverse the gifts are, there is a singular giver of the gifts, and these gifts are to be used in unity for the purpose of building up or edifying the church so that you and I together would be matured in our faith as we join together to serve Him and make a difference in the world in which He has placed us. We looked last week at the gifts, Roman numeral number 3 in our outline, and there's a lot of difference of opinion about the gifts, but from my understanding there are two classifications of these spiritual gifts. The first one is the permanent gifts, those that will always be in the church forever and forever, And then secondly, the temporary gifts, and that's where the difference of opinion can come in. And these were gifts that were used to authenticate the gospel message and the messengers that were sent out into the world to share the truth about who Jesus was. So when the canonization of Scripture was complete, when the Apostle John finished the book of Revelation, the canonization of Scripture was complete, the revelation of God was complete, and so the temporary gifts then ceased to exist. There was no new revelation coming. There was no need to authenticate the gospel message or the messengers since the message had been completed. And so since the message has been completed, there's no longer a need for these temporary gifts to be given or to authenticate the messenger or the message. So the permanent gifts, very, very quickly, are first the speaking gifts. And Paul outlines these as wisdom and knowledge and prophecy. 
There are two others that he mentions in the book of Romans that he doesn't mention here. And that is the gift of teaching and the gift of exhortation. There is some overlap within these gifts. Some of these gifts in the first century probably had a little bit of a revelatory aspect to them as God was revealing the truth of his word through the teaching of the apostles, through the wisdom and the prophecy that he had given to them. But again, once the canonization of scripture was complete, the revelatory aspect of the speaking gifts was completed. So when any pastor or any teacher or any author speaks on behalf of God, it is not based upon new revelation, but it is simply teaching the existing revelation that it, that was completed with the finishing of John's book of Revelation. Secondly, there are the serving gifts. Paul only mentions in this passage faith and discernment. Faith is the ability to trust God in the, in the face of great difficulty or circumstance. Discernment is the ability to, to sift beyond the surface, to get into the motives and the intentions in a way that may or may not be very obvious. And so that's kind of a challenging gift to recognize, most especially important in the first century when there was a very pantheistic or pluralistic expression of religion. This would also be true in the, in the far eastern religions of our day and age today. But there are other serving gifts that Paul does not mention here. Those are the gifts of leadership, helps, mercy, and giving. The third category of gift is the sign gifts. Paul mentions all of these here, and these are the temporary gifts that many believe no longer exist in the way they did during the first century because there's no longer any need to authenticate the message or the messenger. And Paul mentions these as healings and miracles and tongues and interpretations of tongues. Now, that does not mean that God does not heal. It does not mean that God does still does not do miraculous works in our midst. It just means that they're no longer active as they were in the first century. So all of the gifts that are given, all the gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament are sovereignly controlled by God. They are given to His children at His discretion as He desires for the singular purpose of building up or edifying the church. These permanent gifts are necessary to accomplish this purpose of mutual edification and building up. And the Corinthian focus was almost singularly on the gift of tongues and probably to some degree on the speaking gifts. The the gift of tongues was active during Paul's ministry there and in the writing of this book of Corinthians. But they were not accomplishing the purpose of building up and edifying the church. In fact, the opposite was taking place. They were creating division and they were actually tearing down the church because of their improper emphasis and their misunderstanding of how these gifts were to be used within the church. Now, Paul is going to provide an analogy to the necessity of the variety of the gifts as well as the continued need for unity in the presence of great diversity. So we're going to read verses 12 through 21 and then talk about that for a little bit. Here's what God's Word says to us today. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. 
If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as He desired. If they were all, excuse me, if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now, I'll say this at the beginning. I won't be able to go through all of Roman numeral 4 today because of time. And there are some things that need to be pulled out in the second part of this that I didn't want to spend too much time on because dealing with the next week would make it harder to connect to. So, Roman numeral 4, the topic of our message today, is interdependency, not independence. So thinking about what those words mean to us, interdependency simply means that I am in need of you and you are in need of me as a member of the body of Christ. Independence within the body of Christ is not to be. There is not to be a lone ranger. There's not to be a lone ranger and a tonto. There is to be a singular body even though there is incredible diversity within our experience of the body. So Paul is going to go on and flesh this out a little bit more in a metaphorical, in an analogous way as we look at this topic of unity explained. This is what Paul is going to do. He's going to explain the unity as he's already addressed the same Lord, the same Spirit, the same God, And he's going to do that beginning in letter A, one body. Verse 12 again, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Christ is one, and His body is one. You cannot separate the head of the body, Christ, from the body. What would that be? It would be a mess, right? It just wouldn't exist as a body. So Paul is going to use the human body as an analogy to emphasize the unity that is to exist, the expected unity that is to exist within the body of Christ. Now, our physical bodies are made up of many, many parts most of which we can't even see, and that's a part of what we'll flesh out a little bit later. Yet our bodies, even though made up of many, many parts, is yet a singular body. Listen to this. The body, as you know, is an incredibly complex organism. It has several vital organs. The brain, the heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidney. The body can function apart from these vital organs. There are roughly 200 bones that create our skeleton that enable us to stand up and to walk and to do all the things that we do every day that we take for granted. These these roughly 200 bones are connected by roughly 600 muscles and we can sometimes see those through the skin. We can sometimes see the bones through the skin. But these muscles enable us to do all the things that we need to do in order to function in the body that God has given us. Listen to this. There are nearly 45 miles of nerves that run through your body. 45 miles of nerve that run through your body. Isn't that incredible? 
That's why when you have a little bitty thing that hurts, your whole body recognizes it because all those nerves are connected together. As surprising as that may be, listen to this, according to the Franklin Institute, they say there is almost 100,000 miles of blood vessel in the adult body. Think about that. 100,000 miles. You can't see any of that. Yet all of this incredibly diverse part of our body is necessary and it's one. It's a single body. It functions together interdependently. Incredibly diverse yet a singular body. So Paul uses this analogy to to make this point is that there is also in a similar way incredible diversity within the body of Christ It is diverse, yet it is singular. The universal church is a singular body of Christ made up of incredible diversity. Now, if you just look around this room and you imagine the diversity that is, that is present here, think about the diversity that is taking, that that exists within South America. Or Korea. Or other parts of Asia. Or Russia. Or Africa. There's incredible diversity within the body of Christ, yet the body is singular. So the local church is to function as a singular body of Christ with a similar diversity of the human body. Now, our local body of of believers is nowhere near as complex as the human body is, and that would be true in most every church, And yet the church finds it incredibly difficult to function with unity. Isn't that true? I have my likes, I have my desires, I have my preferences, I have my ideas. I have my non-negotiables, I have my emphases. And we're not going to agree on those things. And when we don't agree on these things, you know what it is? It's conflict. Who's going to win? Is it going to be a power struggle? Is it going to be a fight? Is somebody going to win? Is somebody going to lose? Or are we going to learn how to function as a unified body in the midst of incredible diversity? So differences divide, but the cross of Christ unifies in a singular body incredibly diverse people. Now Paul will go on to emphasize this point of unity by saying, letter B, that there is one Spirit. Verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So you will note that there is one Spirit. There's not a Baptist Spirit. There's not a Presbyterian Spirit. There's not a Methodist Spirit. There's not a Charismatic Spirit. There's not a Universal Spirit. There is a single Spirit. And if you'll notice, in your Bible, Spirit is capitalized to indicate that Paul is talking about the one and only Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So there is one body, excuse me, one Spirit, and we were all baptized into one body. So think about it like this. You think about a a, a swimming pool. And everybody jumps into that pool, right? That is what the Spirit has done. The Spirit has baptized us into a singular entity called the body of Christ. That's what happened at the moment of our 
of our conversion. So this verse communicates two important truths about his body. Letter I is its formation. The formation of the body. How did the body come together? How did the body get created? Well, we were all baptized into this singular body at the moment of our salvation, regardless of our ethnicity or our status as citizens. So what Paul does here in identifying Jews and Greeks and Jews and Greeks, he's separating them basically into two categories. All people in this day and age were either Jew or they were Greek. All of them baptized in the same body. He also identifies slaves or free. And that was a reality in this era. You were either a slave or you were free. And Paul says that the Spirit has baptized all of those people, regardless of their citizenship status, into a singular body. To be baptized into Christ does not speak of the physical act of baptism, being immersed in the pool or in the lake or in the river, but it is the spiritual act of salvation completed in us by the work of the Holy Spirit. When you and I are saved, we are immediately indwelt by the Spirit, and the Bible teaches us that we are sealed in our union with Christ by the Holy Spirit. Here's what Paul would write to the church at Ephesus. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So the Spirit has baptized us into this body, think about being put into the pool, and then He has sealed us in our union with Him. He's put a cover on the pool, and we can't get out. We're in the body. You can't defect. You can't be yanked out. You are sealed by the Spirit in the body of Christ. This is what has taken place. This is how the body of Christ was formed through our conversion. Second important truth about this body is its filling. So the body was formed at conversion as the Holy Spirit has sealed us. Secondly, the Holy Spirit has also filled us. The last part of verse 13 says, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. You were made to drink of one spirit. Again, a singular spirit made to drink of that. So again, this speaks of our conversion. Just as we were baptized by one spirit, all believers at the moment of their conversion are indwelt by and filled with this same spirit. This filling or indwelling happens at the instant we are saved. 1 Corinthians 13, as Paul has already said to them, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Not around you, in you. You are in the body and the Spirit is in you, sealing us in our union with Christ. And so all believers are baptized into one body, by the same Spirit, and all are indwelt by and filled with the same Spirit, emphasizing the importance of our understanding that there is to be unity within the body. There is only one way in. Conversion via the cross, 
the, the message of the gospel. The validation or the verification of this inclusion in the body is the filling or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We can't do that. We can't choose that. God does that for us at the moment we are saved. Now we'll talk a little bit more about the filling of the Spirit when we get into the tongues in full in chapter 14. So we'll kind of pause there and not get off track too far. So the second thing that Paul points out as he's dealing with this unity aspect is number two, diversity is explained. So Paul has explained unity, now he wants to explain diversity. So he he begins this explanation in verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. How many times have we heard that so far in these first 20, or excuse me, in these first 14 verses? Of chapter 12. We've heard it, uh, we've heard it over and over and over. So the body is not one member, but many. So although the body is one, it is made up of many, many parts. This is the diversity that exists within the body, the local church. Just as the physical body has many diverse parts, so does the body of Christ. He explains the variety that exists within the body. And he does this in a number of ways. Letter A, through the different roles. These different roles and the variety of roles is essential to unity. Verse 15 and 16 says, "The foot, If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not of the part of the body, it is not for this reason any less the part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. So the Corinthian church was divided where it should have been unified and tried to be uniform where it should have been diverse. Let me say that again. The Corinthian church was divided where it should have been unified and it tried to be uniform where it should have been diverse. So it appears that the believers in Corinth were either unhappy with their giftedness. Well, I don't want to be a hand. I don't want to be a foot. I don't want to be something less than what I perceive to be the best of the best. They either were unhappy with their giftedness or they were being told by others that they weren't important as others. Well, you're just a hand or you're just a foot. Your gift is, yeah, it's gift, but it's really not important. It's not important as, as my gift because I'm superior, I'm special, I'm better than you. And any time that kind of mentality takes place within any group of people, it's going to tear them down, not build them up. God gave the variety of gifts to build up the body to maturity, to edify it, He didn't want us to focus on the wrong things, misapply, misunderstand, and therefore tear down what he desires be built up. So Paul diffuses the notion that unhappiness with your gift is okay, or looking down on somebody else's seemingly less important gift is okay. He diffuses that notion by explaining that a foot or an ear is not a lesser part of the body than is any other part. Now, not being happy with your gifting and choosing not to use it is both irresponsible and sinful. If you say, well, I don't like the gift that God has given me. It's not very important. I'd prefer something different, if you please, a la carte. 
So I'm just not going to use it. Well, that's irresponsible because God has entrusted that to you. And it's sinful because you would be rebelling against God's sovereign choice in giving you the gift that He has given to you. Similarly, telling someone else that their gifting is of lesser value because it isn't as public is also sinful and irresponsible. Because anytime we criticize another person... We're basically basically trying to build ourselves up. Well, I appreciate what you're doing, and it's really not that big of a deal, but thanks anyway. I appreciate that. Well, I'm, I'm better. I'm, I'm more important. Mine's more vital, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So both positions, either not being happy or being told it's not of value, both positions render us inactive in building up the body and advancing the cause of the kingdom. Now, what is it called in our physical bodies when a part of the body refuses to work or can't work? What, what do we call that? And there's probably many different things we could, we could call it. What I'm thinking of is paralysis. Right? If your legs don't work, what does that mean? Well, you can't walk. You can't run. You can't jump. You can't do those things. Now, you can still get around... But when the body doesn't use its parts, it's a form of paralysis. And so within the body of Christ, if we have segments of the body that say, I don't like my gift, I don't want to use my gift, I would prefer a different gift, the body suffers paralysis and it can't advance the kingdom. It can't build up the body in the way God has designed it to and desires it to. That makes it irresponsible and sinful. Every member of the body ought to say, I've got a gift, please tell me how I can use it to build the body. It may not be the most important, but God gave it to me and I want to use it. That should be the mission of every believer. And I'm going to repeat a similar phrase a little bit later. So Paul goes on to explain the importance of this diversity here in verse 17. Think about this. If the whole body were an eye... Where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? So imagine a head that had this massive eye, or imagine instead of a head, just an eye. That's Cyclops and all kinds of other um, images of monsters. But imagine the entire body being an eye. It wouldn't be a body, right? Same way with an ear. So... Paul is using the analogy of the physical body to communicate that every part of the body has a different function and this variety of function is essential to completely carry out the function of the body. Right? Isn't that the way it is? So this variety that exists within the body, this diversity that exists, letter B, is planned by God. Look what Paul says here in verse 18. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as He desired. So what does Paul do here? Paul points to the sovereignty of God in His choosing to give to each member the gift that He wants them to have with the expectation that it's going to be used to build up the body of Christ. God chose that, just as He desired. 
And for us to sit here and go, I don't like my gift. It's not the kind of gift I'd like to have. I'd like to do something else. We question the sovereignty of God. We question the wisdom of God. We might even shake our fist at God and say, God, that's not right. I could be a great fill-in-the-blank. For us to question God's wisdom and God's goodness and how He has chosen to gift us is not a good thing. We should never ever do that. To refuse to be used how and where God has placed us is sinful disobedience. To not like it or to prefer something else and to say, well, I'm just going to take my, my toys home and I'm, going to, I'm just going to go home. I'm just not going to play. That's just the way it's going to be. It's sinful disobedience to the sovereign choice of God and how He chose to gift you to build up His body in the church. So every Christian should have a ministry they serve in to help build up the body. Every single one. Why? Look what it says here in verse 18. God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. Think about the physical body. What would be the result if our vital organs weren't protected by a skull and a a rib cage and a sternum? What if all of these nerves and these these, um, blood vessels were on the outside of our skin? Could you imagine that? It would hurt to walk. You'd bump into something and you'd just start gushing blood. God made the body precisely as it needed to be so that it could function exactly as God desired it to function. And this is what He's done with us. He's done this in the church, gifting each one as He desired. Therefore, every member of the body ought to have, should have, must have a ministry that they serve in to help build up the body. The body is made up of many parts, and each of these parts are necessary Paul says in verse 19, if they were all one member, where would the body be? So if the physical body was comprised of a single part, it would not be a body. It just wouldn't be. So this reality dispels the myth that some parts of the body are not as important as others. Therefore, Paul stresses here equal value. We see this in verse 20 and 21, and this takes us to the end of our focus this morning. But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So Paul very clearly identifies the problem within Corinth. Some members with the more esteemed gifts felt superior when they compared themselves with other people. Look at this analogy. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Think about that. Your eye looks upon this delicious plate of food. You can smell it. You know what your mouth is going to taste. And you're salivating. And your stomach begins to rumble. And your eye says, man, that is good. And the hand says, uh-uh, not me, buddy. I'm not going to touch it. <laughs> figure it out on yourself. Figure it out on your own. Look at the other part of this. The head cannot say to the feet, I have no need of you. 
hey, this place is on fire. i got to get out. It's time to go. Not me, buddy. I'm sitting right here. Figure it out yourself. I mean, the analogies create such a ridiculous reality that you get, you shake and say, oh, well, that's just silly. But this is the problem in Corinth. Well, you don't have a speaking gift, so you're not very important. I don't have an esteem gift, so I'm just not going to serve. It's not the way God designed the body to function. Just as our body is incredibly complex, and is it is really a miracle every single day that we can live a normal life. Think about this. You don't tell your heart to beat. You don't tell your lungs to take in air. It just does it. It does it by God's design. And when it doesn't work the way it's designed, buddy, you know it. And the same thing is true in the church. Now, what Paul is likely identifying as the supreme example of this is the Corinthian church's overemphasis on tongues, which as a review is an extension of the mystery religions and the ecstatic speech they experienced, either through demonic influence or or through some faked experience, to draw attention to themselves or to have some kind of super spiritual experience with the quote, little g, God. And so this was the deal. This was the best thing. And that was the proof that you were a superior spiritual Christian. And if you didn't have that, something was wrong with you. So they probably also focused to some extent on the speaking gifts as we saw all the way back when Paul talked about them being filled with all wisdom and knowledge and speech. So they looked upon, they looked down upon those who were gifted differently than they were. And again, Paul dispels the myth. One human body part cannot say to the other, I don't need you because it simply is not true. The eye cannot do what the hand does, and the feet cannot do what the head does. Therefore, there is equal value within the parts of the body, even though there is a significantly different function. I know of great pastors and great preachers who would go nuts taking care of children in the nursery. Why? That's just not what they're gifted to do. I know people who love kids and build relationship with kids and the kids just love it when they see them and they run up to them and hug them. But they could never stand up before a group of people and preach a message. That's okay. Very, very different, but still equally valuable. This diversity is essential to unity in the body. The same is true in the body of Christ. There is equal value in how God has chosen to gift you. Not just because God chose it, because parts of the human body are made with an interdependency. Remove a vital organ and you've got a big problem. Losing your sight or your mobility creates incredible challenges for your body. You can adapt, you can compensate, but the body functions best when all parts function fully because all parts are valuable. Now, for the sake of time and attention to detail that we're going to look at next time, I'm going to pause here and we'll pick this up again. But I want to say this. 
that I think one of the greatest tragedies that exists within the body of Christ today is those who simply say, my gift is just not very important. I just don't see how it makes a difference. But I want to tell you, it makes a difference because God sovereignly gave you that gift. And God expects you to use that gift to do your part to build the body to make it better than it is apart from your lack of contribution. I think when we look at the way God has gifted us and we say, well, it's not very important, not very special, eh, the church is not going to really suffer without it. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's not the truth. We need to proudly, boldly claim the gift that God has given us. We need to understand how to use it. And we need to do everything in our power to exercise it to its fullest. For the glory of God. For the building up of His church. Because apart from that, the church doesn't get built up. Let's pray.